pray. Amen. Be seated. Amen. Well, join me in thanking all of our uh, singers here this morning, everybody that's helped us out. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. And all of our, uh, all of our musicians uh, who, who are helping us and uh, bringing us to the throne of grace this morning as we worship our Lord. A uh, happy Easter to everyone who's here. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning as uh, we gather to celebrate the glorious resurrection uh, from the dead of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If uh, you'll take your Bible with me this morning, the text I want to look at is John chapter 11, and uh, I hope you have a Bible with you or maybe an electronic device you can look at the Bible on. If you don't, you might look on, want to look on with the person next to you because I think as we go through this passage, if you're looking at the Bible, it will mean uh, much more to you this morning. Um, I want to bring a message here in John 11 that I've titled The Grave Robber. Uh, John 11 teaches us the greatest truth that any person can ever know, and that's that death will not have the final word because Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. I love the way uh, one person put it years ago. They said, if Jesus Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Jesus Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. But Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that changes everything because life is found in him. A hope beyond the grave is found in Him. Death is emptied of its power in Him alone. Jesus is death's grave digger, if you will. Um, he is the grave robber. Uh, let's break into this story in John 11 in verse 17. We're kind of breaking in the middle. We'll look at some other parts later. But let's begin reading in John 11, verse 17. So when Jesus came, He found that He had already been in the tomb four days. Of course, He's speaking here of His friend Lazarus. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I ask that whatever you ask of God, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. May the Lord write His eternal word on our hearts this morning. Many of you uh, know the name Bono. Uh, he's a singer, a songwriter, a political activist. Uh, he's the lead singer of the famous uh, group U2. He once said this about death. He said, I haven't really accepted that there are some things that I can't control. I don't remember agreeing to people dying, people close to me, or even people I don't know. If they're dying for no reason, I can't accept that. I'm not good with death. Now, Bono speaks, I think, for millions of people when he says he isn't good with death, uh, that he hasn't adjusted to the fact that life is about dying. Um, he doesn't remember signing up for that, if you will. And if we're honest, I think we all feel the same way. Uh, despite all of the, the wonderful medical advances and scientific discoveries in recent years for which we're all deeply thankful, we still have no human answer for death. Uh, we reluctantly agree, uh, agree with the funeral director who signed all of his letters, eventually yours. Uh, that's a fact, right? 
Uh, we're living with dying. And the Bible says that death is an appointment we must keep. Death is a wage that's earned. Death is a valley that we must all cross through. But if we're honest, none of us are really good with death. I mean, I think Bono was right. But it's comforting for us to know this morning that neither was Jesus. Jesus wasn't good with death. Jesus didn't adjust to it, if you will. He didn't embrace it easily. And we see this play out in our text here this morning in John chapter 11. As we break into this story, we're about uh, two miles east of the, the city of Jerusalem in a suburban village called Bethany. If you've ever been to Israel and stood there on the Mount of Olives looking down into the Temple Mount area, Bethany's just back over your left shoulder. It's on the southeastern slopes there of the Mount of Olives. It's kind of a, a little suburban village of Jerusalem. And it's just a, a few days now before Jesus is going to uh, enter the city of Jerusalem for his triumphal entry. And Jesus learns about the sickness of his friend Lazarus who lives in this town of Bethany. And uh, Jesus enters, a, or he learns about the sickness and then ultimately the death of, of his friend Lazarus. So he enters a home that's been touched by death. And, and Jesus goes out to the tomb of his friend. If you look down at verse 33, it says, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. So Jesus goes out to the, the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and it says that when Jesus gets there, he's deeply moved in spirit and he's troubled. Now that, that word deeply moved literally means to be angry or to be outraged. It was used of a, of a horse when it would become upset, would begin to snort, kind of flaring of the nostrils. And the word troubled here means to be unsettled or disturbed. Now a lot of people when they read this wonder, well, what is Jesus angry about? Some people think it's the, the unbelief of the Jewish people who were there or some different thoughts they have. But I think what angered Jesus was death. Jesus was angered by death. It roused the anger of Jesus because he saw the wreckage and the, the havoc that it caused. He saw the wrenching sorrow of his beloved friends Martha and Mary at the death of their brother Lazarus. Jesus wasn't good with death. No one hated the destructive consequences of death more than Jesus. Jesus isn't good with death. In fact, we see this in the gospel. So, someone I read years ago pointed out that every time Jesus showed up at a funeral, the person came back to life. And think about there's three instances. He raised the, the son of the widow of Nain. Um, he ra raised the daughter of Jairus. And then here he shows up and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Death offended Jesus because he was and is life itself. He's the source of life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And death can't live long in his presence. And he can't live long in its presence either. We have to remember as we think about our Lord Jesus and who he is and what he's done that Christianity isn't just a set of propositions. Christianity is the good news of what Jesus Christ did to death by his death and his resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection and the life for all who believe in him. That's who our Savior is. And Christianity, when you boil it all down, is believing that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And believing that uh, changes your story now and forever. So let's look together here in John 11 just for a few minutes to see this great truth. I've got three points here, three things uh, to take us through this text. We see a sorrowing home. 
we see a searching heart, and then finally we see a surfacing hope. In verse, nine, uh, verse 17, we begin here with a sorrowing home. As we pick up this story in verse 17, Jesus enters a home that's been touched by death. This is a home that's saturated with sadness and sorrow. I mean, it's a home that's burdened uh, with, with bereavement. Now, when we, we back up in this story, back to verse 1, it says, Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. We don't, we don't know what he had, but he was sick. And it says, it's the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, if you read much in the Gospels, you know that this is a family that Jesus knew well and he loved deeply. When he would go and visit Jerusalem, he would often retire from the city at night, go that about 1.7 miles over to Bethany, and would spend the night in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It was a, a place that Jesus felt comfortable, where he loved uh, to be. But Lazarus is sick, but we learn later in verse 14, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now the Jews back in that day buried their dead within 24 hours. The Jews didn't embalm bodies, so they would bury them within the first 24 hours of death. They would grieve for 30 days, a 30-day mourning period. Uh, the first seven days were the most intense. The first three of those seven days, uh, they didn't do any work at all. And many visitors would come and go to pay their respects. And in fact, some of the visitors would remain with them during the whole week of this time of intense grieving. And uh, the fourth day was the strongest day of sorrow. And you'll, you'll, you'll see why that is here in just a few moments. But that's the day that Jesus arrives is the fourth day. So he arrives when the morning is at its painful peak. Now, one of the most beautiful things to me about this episode is that the Lord Jesus himself entered into uh, the grief with this family. Uh, the sorrow that filled that home filled him. I mean, Jesus uh, couldn't be happy because they were sad. Notice down in verse 35, he says, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And verse 35 says, Jesus wept. That word wept there, this is the only time this particular word is used in the New Testament. And you could translate it literally, Jesus burst into tears. Now, as you know, many people will say this is the shortest verse in the Bible. It is the shortest verse in English. It's actually not the shortest verse in Greek. A little Bible trivia for you there. But it's the shortest verse in English in our Bible. And it's been pointed out that it's short in length, but it's long on meaning. Because it shows us that Jesus isn't di some distant, detached Savior. He's not distant and detached from our sorrows. He shares our heartaches and our hurts. One man I read this week said it like this. I love this. He says, we don't worship a dry-eyed Messiah. Aren't you glad? We don't worship a dry-eyed Messiah. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You know, when you think about it in John 11, nowhere is the deity of Jesus seen more clearly than in this chapter. He's the resurrection and life who raises a man from the dead. But I, I think we could also say that nowhere is Jesus' humanity more clearly seen than in John 11, because Jesus burst into tears. And this shows us the, the appropriateness, I think, of grieving when we lose a loved one. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4 says that when someone dies that we love, that as believers, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. So there's a limit to our grief as believers. We I think we tend sometimes to either underplay it and try to be too stoic, or sometimes we may be tempted to overdo it. Um, 
Someone has said that if you overdo it in grief, that sometimes there can be a second death, the death of the one who's still alive. But I think at least this shows us that grieving is natural and normal and necessary, and Jesus enters into our grief and our sadness. So when you cry and when I cry, Jesus can relate. Jesus wept, and he knows every human heart, and he knows every human hurt, and he aches with you and with me and our sorrows. J.C. Ryle said it like this, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, mighty to save, but he's the Son of Man, mighty to feel. It's an old saying I heard years ago, and every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has his part. Now, people often wonder, well, why did Jesus cry when he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? I mean, why stand there and burst into tears when you know you're going to raise him from the dead in just a few moments? It's because Jesus loved this family and what death had done. Jesus felt the burden of sickness and death before he removed it. And the book of Hebrews tells us this same Jesus is our high priest, seated now at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and that he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He's a faithful and merciful high priest. So we have here at the beginning a sorrowing home. Now, as the story moves on, Martha comes out to meet Jesus as he arrives, and we find a searching heart. Jesus comes, and Martha comes uh, to him. Now, she must have been looking for him, because if you look down at verse 30, she actually met Jesus outside the village. So they've been waiting for Jesus to get there and, and waiting and watching, and she actually runs outside of town to meet Jesus before he even gets there. So true to her character, Martha rushes out to meet Jesus. She's in the foreground, and her sister Mary remains in the house. It's interesting, these two daughters of the same parents are very, very different. Martha is always pictured in the New Testament as, as assertive and uh, kind of a go-getter and the one in the, the, the foreground, and Mary's always retiring and quiet in the background. Like so many children, these two sisters were very different in their character and temperament. I like the way one man says it. He says, although children grow up in the same home, parents should not expect them to all be the same. God seems to prefer variety. That's true, I mean, of all of us and our families, how different we are. And it was, it's seen in the lives and the character of these two sisters. But notice what Martha says to Jesus in verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha shares her heart with Jesus and searches for an answer to the delay in Jesus in his coming. Because that, that first day Lazarus was sick, they, they'd sent a messenger there, and, and he came back, and they kept waiting and waiting for Jesus, but he doesn't arrive until uh, the fourth day. He didn't come right away. When we go back to the beginning of this story, we discover again, Mary and Martha, they dispatched this messenger to Jesus while Lazarus was still alive. If you go back to verse 1, it says, Now a, a man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And verse 3 says, So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, whom you love is sick. Now, the messenger leaves where Jesus is and returns back to Bethany, and what we read next is mystifying. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not going to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. 
Now, Jesus loved Martha and and her sister Mary and Lazarus. And when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, this is mystifying to us. Jesus delays for two days and just stays put. We'd expect Jesus at this point to put on his sandals and and rush to Bethany uh, to be with this family that he loved so much. But Jesus waits two entire days before he leaves. So if we kind of reconstruct this situation, here's what happened. The first day, the messenger travels from Bethany to where Jesus is and tells Jesus that Lazarus is sick. And we know that Lazarus died that day sometime after the messenger left because Lazarus had been dead four days when Jesus arrived. So the man comes and tells Jesus, he leaves, Lazarus dies sometimes after he leaves to go tell Jesus. Now, days two and three, Jesus stays put for two days. He just stays there and he waits. You kind of have the contrast here. Early in this passage, Jesus waited and then later Jesus wept. But Jesus waits. And then the fourth day, Jesus travels to Bethany and he arrives that fourth day to be there with the family. Now, Lazarus had been dead four days. It tells us that in verse 17, down in verse 39. It's emphasized in the passage. Again, so Lazarus must have died on that first day, sometimes after the messenger left. Now, notice back in verse 4, Jesus told that messenger when he arrived, this sickness is not going to end in death. Now, think about this. Imagine the confusion when that messenger gets back there and tells Mary and Martha, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. And they tell him, well, Lazarus has died. I mean, think about how confusing that must have been. Lazarus is dead. So Martha's trying to make sense of all of this. We have here in Martha a searching heart. Again, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. Lazarus is dead. She's wondering, why did it take Jesus so long to get here? Why did he wait so long? And she could have even wondered, why didn't Jesus heal Lazarus from distance? Remember back in John chapter 4, Jesus healed the son of the nobleman, and he was miles away. He just spoke the word, and he was healed. So with all this running through her mind, Martha runs out to meet Jesus and said, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. Now you'll notice later, if you read over there, that Mary, her sister, says the same thing. So they must have been rehearsing this over and over again. You can imagine them for three days looking at one another over and over again and saying, if only Jesus had been here. Jesus had been here. Lazarus uh, wouldn't have died. Now, some people take Martha's words to Jesus as a a rebuke, that she's rebuking Jesus and saying to him, really, Jesus, you should have been here. But I think they're just words of regret. It's just a, a sorrowful acceptance of events that she hoped would be different. And we have to give Martha some credit here because notice her grief is mingled with faith. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So she trusted that Jesus could have healed Lazarus if he'd been there. But but she's confused by all these circumstances that have unfolded. And look, for you and for me, life will ultimately bring all of us to those if-only or what-if moments of life. If you haven't been there yet, you'll be there someday. If only I'd gone to the doctor sooner. If only I'd quit smoking sooner. If only I had been driving that evening. 
If only I hadn't sent my child on that errand. I mean, on and on and on we can go with the if-only game of life. Don't play the if-only game. It'll drive you crazy. I like what one man says. He says, what shall we do with our if-onlys? Jesus would tell us we must believe that these happenstances are part of God's sovereign purposes and plan. If we could represent all of our if-onlys as dots on a sheet of paper, we must then draw a circle large enough to encompass all of them. And that circle represents the providence of God. We have to see all of the if-onlys and the what-ifs of life within the providential purpose of God himself. But, but look, for all of us, it's so easy in times of sorrow and tragedy to wonder about the wisdom of God and the love of God. To wonder if God really loves us. Notice back in verse 3 again, the sisters sent word saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Lazarus died loved by God. And if you know Christ as your Savior, someday when you die, you will die loved by God. It won't be because God doesn't love you. You'll die in his love. But Martha must have wondered if Jesus cared. And he's saying, look, this isn't going to end in death. And then uh, you know, he's delaying and waiting all this time. But whatever we face, you and I can know that we're loved by God. When everything argues against the love of God and against the sovereignty of God, we have to trust him. There's a story I know I've told before about, uh, about Handley Mole, Dr. Handley Mole. He was the Bishop of Durham in England, a brilliant uh, uh, British Bible teacher and author. He died in 1920. But at one time in his life, he pastored a church in an area where there were a lot of coal mines. And one day, a, a siren, a loud siren went off, a loud whistle. And they all knew in the town that that whistle meant there had been a cave-in down at the coal mine. And so people came and got him and asked him if he could come down and be there with the families and, and talk with them while they were waiting to see what happened. It, it wasn't a matter of if people had died. It was just going to be how many. So he, he took his Bible with him. And, and as you can imagine, you're going to go down there and talk to uh, women and, and, and children and families whose husbands have died in this coal mine and try to think of what to say. And as he was flicking through his Bible, he saw an old bookmark in there that his mother had given him. And so when he was asked to speak to the families there, he said this, it's very difficult for us to understand why God should let an awful disaster happen. We know him and trust him, and all will be right. I have an old bookmarker given to me by my mother. It's worked in silk, and when I examine the wrong side of it, I see nothing but a tangle of threads. It looks like a big mistake. One would think that someone had done it who didn't know what she was doing. But when I turn it over and look at the right side, I see they're beautifully embroidered, the words, God is love. We're looking at all this today from the wrong side. Someday we shall see it from another standpoint, and we shall understand. That's how this life often seems, like a, a mess of tangled threads, but someday we'll see life from the other side. And in the meantime, we have to trust uh, that God is love. Now, why did Jesus wait so long to go? Why did he wait those two days? There's a lot of speculation about that. He tells, it says in verse 4, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified in it. Down in verse 15, the end of verse 14, Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes I wasn't there. That seems like an odd thing to say. Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad. 
But he's not saying he's glad Lazarus died, but he's saying, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. And Jesus' point was that Lazarus' resurrection from the dead would do far more to strengthen the disciples' faith than just healing a sick man. Jesus wanted to ensure that by the time he arrived in Bethany, Lazarus would have been dead for four days. Now, why did he want to arrive the fourth day? Why four days? Uh, Among the, the rabbis in that day, there was a rabbinic teaching that when a person died, the spirit hovered over the body for three days seeking re-entry. That somehow if the body could be resuscitated, that the spirit then would re-enter the body. But according to the rabbis, uh, on the fourth day, after noticing that the body was beginning to decompose, the spirit would depart. So the spirit didn't want any part of it after that, I guess. His body's starting to decompose, the spirit leaves. But only then would death be considered completely irreversible. In other words, on the fourth day, hope was gone. On the fourth day, the body was considered to be beyond any hope of resuscitation. So I think in light of that teaching, it seems to me that Jesus waited to get to Bethany on the fourth day so that when he raised Lazarus from the dead, no one could say that his spirit had just been lingering above the body and simply got resuscitated somehow. In other words, by waiting till the fourth day, Jesus removed all doubt and he brought greater glory to God and greater faith was created in the hearts of his followers. So the delay of Jesus was a purposeful delay that God could be glorified. Now, let's face it, in our lives, the the, the delays of deity are difficult for us to understand. In fact, some of our most nagging questions in life are about timing. If you read the, the, the Psalms, how often the psalmist says, how long, O Lord? It's hard for us to adjust uh, to God's timetable. But you and I have to believe when we're waiting for God that God is up to something and that God is working all things together for good, that His delays are purposeful. It's been well said that God's delays are not God's denials. God will come in His own way, in His own time, in His own way. And when events don't go as we think they should go, we have to believe that God has a better time and a better way. Here's a a quote that may minister to some of you this morning as it did to me this week. He says, when you're facing a delay, trust God. When things aren't going as you planned, trust God. When you're wondering why He hasn't healed you as you've asked, trust God. When you're looking for a job and can't find one, trust God. He has a timetable. When you've asked God to bring that certain someone into your life and there's no one on the horizon, trust God. When you pray that God will give you a family and there's still just two of you, trust God. When you've asked Him to take you home, yet you linger in pain, trust God. He has a timetable. When you pray that God would bring your runaway daughter home, trust God. When you've asked God to change your spouse and give you a more peaceful home, trust God. He has a timetable. On and on we could go, right? But it's hard for us to adjust to the timetable of God. These are critical words for us to remember when God has us in the waiting room of life. We have a sorrowing home. We have a searching heart. But finally, in verse 23, we come here to a surfacing hope. The text here moves from Lord if to Lord I believe. Martha comes to see here that the resurrection is not just a prospect or a proposition. The resurrection is a person. 
Notice Jesus says to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's looking into the future. She says, Lord, you're not really telling me anything I don't already know. But then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And when Jesus says, I am, he's claiming to be God. It's a statement of deity. Whenever Moses asked God back at the burning bush, who are you? Who should I say sent me? He says, tell them I am sent me. I am that I am. Yahweh, the name of God. And when Jesus claims here to be the I am, he's claiming deity for himself. Many of you may know in, in John's gospel, there are seven of these I am statements. This is the fifth one. Jesus is claiming to be very God of very God. And Jesus doesn't say here, I teach resurrection and life, or I give resurrection and life, or I bring resurrection and life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. There is no resurrection and no life apart from him. Jesus is more than just a good teacher or a great man. Jesus is claiming to be God. And that's who Jesus is. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's without peer. I like the way one person said it. He said, you can believe the resurrection and you can deny the resurrection, but you cannot ignore the resurrection. You can't sit on the fence because Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be the one who conquers death. He claims to be life itself. He claims to be the one who can give you eternal life. He is without equal. Now, I want to go to the end of the story. I don't want to leave you hanging. Most of you know that Lazarus was raised, but I want to show you that in the Bible. Go down to verse uh, 43. When he had said these things, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had uh, come forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So Jesus stands there, and I've had the privilege to go to Lazarus' tomb, the, the traditional place of Lazarus' tomb. You can picture Jesus there crying out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. But it's been often pointed out that it's been a good thing that Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, calling him by name, because if Jesus had just said, come forth, every body and every grave in the world would have come out. You think about that, that's true. Jesus says in John 5, someday the Son of Man will come, and all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. So Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come forth to keep everybody from coming out. That's the person and the power of Jesus. Erwin Lutzer, in one of his books, says this. He says, during the Russian Revolution of, of 1918, Lenin said that if communism were implemented, there would be bread for every household. Yet he never had the nerve to say, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Hitler made astounding claims for the role of Germany on this planet, believing that he was beginning a thousand-year Reich. Despite these outlandish claims, he never said, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my words and believes in me, him who sent me, has eternal life and will not be condemned, but is passed from death to life. Buddha taught enlightenment, yet he died seeking more light. He never said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Muhammad claimed that he and his tribes were descendants from Abraham through Ishmael, one of Abraham's sons. But he never said, before Abraham was, I am. 
Freud believed that psychotherapy would heal people's emotional and spiritual pains, but he could never say, peace I give you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. New Age gurus say that we will all be reincarnated, yet not one of them can say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he's dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. No one can say that. No one in history can legitimately say that but Jesus. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, even if he dies, will live, he's talking there about physical life. He's saying, if you, if you believe in me, even though you're dead, you will live. That is, you'll be resurrected someday. But then he goes on to say, whoever believes in me will never die. And in the, the Greek there, it's a double negative. You could translate it like this. If you believe in me, you will never, ever die. You say, well, wait a minute. People die all the time. I mean, Lazarus died. But Jesus is talking there about the second death about spiritual death, about eternal separation from God. And he says, if you believe in me, you will never, ever die. You'll never taste the second death, that death of being separated from God. I mean, even lost people will live forever. They will endure forever separated from God. So it's not just a life that never ends, but it's eternal life. It's God's life. It's a life that separates us from God's wrath. And we're given new life when we trust in Jesus Christ and we believe in Him. Like Jesus said, when you believe in Him, you're born again. You have a new birth. You're born spiritually. You come to life. We get to the end of verse 26 and we come to maybe the greatest question in all of life, but certainly this is the supreme question of Easter. When Jesus told Mary, I'm the resurrection, or told Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. And what does He say? Do you believe this? He's not asking her, do you believe that I can raise Lazarus? He's saying, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life, that resurrection and the life are present in me? And I would ask you that same question this morning. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is the resurrection and the life, that he's the only one who can save you and forgive you and wash away your sins? If you do, it will change your life forever. There's an old quote I read years ago. When I first heard it, I didn't understand it, but somebody explained it to me, and it really helped. And it's, it's a great old statement. If a man's born once, he'll die twice. If a man's born twice, he'll only die once. If you're only born once, if you're only born physically into this world, you're going to die twice. You're going to die physically, and then you're going to die spiritually, separated from God forever. You'll undergo the second death. But if you're born twice... All of us here have been born once. We're all here, right? We've all been born once. We've all been born physically. But if you've been born twice, that is, if you've been born again spiritually through trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you'll only die once. You'll just die physically. And if we're the generation when the rapture comes, some of us may, may not even die uh, physically, praise God. But that's what Jesus is promising. He's saying, if you believe in me, you will never ever die. Let me ask you this morning, have you been born once or have you been born twice? Let's pray together.
Oh, it's been well said that without Jesus, you have an endless hope, but with Jesus, you have a hopeless, without Jesus, you have a hopeless end. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, trust in Him today. Believe in Him. Believe this, that He is the resurrection and the life. The Bible says if you call on the name of the Lord, that you will be saved. If you've never done so, why not come to Him now and take Jesus Christ to be your Savior from sin? Be born again. Be born that second time so that you'll never, ever die. And for those of us who know the Lord, my prayer is that we'll trust Him, whatever we face in life, and all the what-ifs and the if-onlys of life, and all the delays, we'll know that God has a purpose. We'll believe and we'll trust that God is up to something. That God is working all things for our good. We're loved by him. Father, thank you for Jesus, the resurrection and the life. May his name be praised forever.